Nicholas de Taranto is a world traveler. But seeing the world from a different perspective is nothing strange for Nicholas. Nicholas grew up in Germany. His mother is English. His father is half English, half German. However, his last name made its way to England all the way from Italy. With such complexity in his family, Nicholas was destined to become a storyteller. After high school in Germany, Nicholas attended university in England. His interest in history and English literature developed into curiosity, and he found himself being attracted to cameras and the process of filmmaking more and more. After university, he co-produced a film in Germany with a friend about two brave persons in a small town. That film garnered much praise and encouraged him to continue along his path. Years later, Nicholas has mastered the art of producing documentaries and docuseries. He has traveled to the Caribbean to document the culture of the tiny island of Anguilla on a BBC series. He has also explored the intriguing world of Mexican cartels and the Italian mafia through his other work. His love for filmmaking continues to be fueled by his interest for all things human. The people and the stories from other countries and other cultures are always foremost in his mind. He is by all means highly intelligent with the heart of a humanitarian. Nicholas's stories expose the characteristics of their subjects and allow us, the audience, to identify with even the most subtle bits of their personalities. Though he has done much, Nicholas continues to find new stories and new places to explore. This is the story, thus far, of Nicholas de Toronto. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Is a documentary producer and a world traveler, Nicholas de Taranto. Welcome to Planet Thirty, Crispin. Thank you so much for having me on this on this your birthday as well. I think this is a special occasion that <laughs> listeners should know about. <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. Uh, another another turn around the globe, around the sun. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. But I think it also shows how devoted you are to your craft that you're, you know. You're, you're taking time here on your birthday talking to me. And yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. No, thank you for being here. You know, they say do what you love on your birthday. So here we are. I, I like working. <laughs> well, there you go. No, I feel, I feel doubly on it. Um, yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> I <laughs> hope that this is like uh, a small kind of gesture towards a nice birthday present. But I'm sure you'll be doing other good stuff today as well. Yes, uh, you know, taking a break here and there. <laughs> Good stuff. So, Nicholas, uh, as the audience can hear, you have a strong English accent, but you're actually German. Yeah, well, it, it's all a bit kind of complicated. Um, and as listeners will have just heard as well, I've got a pretty Italian-sounding last name. Basically, I am a bit of a mixture of things. I was born and raised in Dusseldorf, Germany, but to a predominantly... Uh, British household, so my mum's English, my dad's half English, half German, 
And, you know, we all spoke English at home, went to English-speaking schools. And when I was 18, I then went to university in the UK. And I've more or less lived here ever since. Um, but yeah, I speak German. I am part German. And uh, somewhere a couple generations down the line, uh, my ancestors came from the heel of the boot um, in southern Italy, a place called Taranto. Um, hence but, the name. Yeah. You were sorry? I said hence the name. And... and... <laughs> And the D-E, I guess, means of. So you're Nicholas of Taranto. I am, yeah. My, I, you know, I'd always hoped that there was a sort of, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, sort of princely or kind of ducal heritage there that I might be able to tap into some, you know, nice old ancestral family villa that we could reclaim. Um, <laughs> but... I think the I don't think the princes of Taranto have been have been much much of a, a force since like the late Middle Ages. But you know, um, I will visit one day. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so tell me tell me a bit about growing up in Germany. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, you know, you you grew up. Well, I think you know wherever you grow up is, is your home in, in some ways. And it, I did have German family as well. So and we did. You know, we very much knew that we were, from from the age of being kids, we were a bit of both. So, in that sense, it, it, it didn't feel foreign, is what I'm, I suppose I'm trying to say. Um, I loved, you know, I still have a huge soft spot for Germany. Uh, it's totally shaped me. I mean, it was a very, had a very nice, uh, uh, you know, very supportive, like, very pleasant childhood. Dusseldorf is a nice, medium-sized city of about half a million or 600,000 people, Um it's on the Rhine, which is a river in Western Germany, and it's closer to Amsterdam or Paris than it is to Berlin. That's how much further west it is. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I enjoyed it very much. It was, if anything, strange for me coming to the UK when I was 18, because I'd always been raised as sort of, you are English, you are British. Um, but then when I came to actually live here, um, I'd obviously visited the UK and England you know, throughout my youth, we always used to do Christmases in, in, in Yorkshire. But when I actually came to living here at the age of 18, it was, you know, that plus going, going away from home, going to university, I found it really odd. I actually found sort of there were so many bits about British culture that I didn't quite understand. <laughs> so I felt like a bit of a, an outsider. But, give me, give know, me, give me one of them. What was, what were, it, oh, give man, me one uh, of the, uh, the quirks. <laughs> the British nightlife. That was, you know, you're 18 years old. That's very important to you. And like that, I could not get my head around at all. <laughs> One of the things that I found, I, I, remember, I remember this conversation um, uh, when I was a, like, you know, university freshman and I'm talking to a friend about going out and he's like, well, we should hurry up. And I was saying, it's 10 o'clock, like, you know, can we get a drink in an hour, have a late one? And he goes, mate, do you know what time the pub's shut? And that for me was this brutal, rude awakening. I, you know, you come growing up from a country, like, in a country like Germany where, you know, nightlife is always very, very chilled out in as much as like places just stay open. Um, <laughs> coming to a country like England where you're suddenly going, oh, right, okay, I've got 10 minutes to make it to the pub. Um, yeah, it was little <laughs> things like that. Uh, that uh, Interesting. Yeah, that, that made me feel quite like a... Yeah, fish out of water a little bit. <laughs> so what what was the what was the dream coming up? Like, was uh, documentary or filmmaking was that always in your in your purview, or did it start out with something else? It's uh, I mean it's difficult to say when you look back at what point it kind of actually 
hit you that that was what you something you were going to do. This sounds really silly, but I've always enjoyed watching TV. I've always enjoyed watching good films, good documentaries. My mother, especially, she encouraged it. She like illegally made sure we somehow got the BBC in <laughs> in Germany, so we could still be watching all of that. And maybe you know, I just mentioned that I was there are bits about Britain that seemed very unfamiliar to me when I came to living here. But the the vast majority of British culture did feel very familiar to me, and that's because I grew up watching so many great David Attenborough films or good BBC history documentaries. These kind of things really struck me as a kid and, and you know, got me interested in looking at the world. I then went on to university and studied history and English, basically a fairly broad, you know, kind of arts degree. But I always had this idea of journalism or something like that in mind. And the reason, though, that I didn't want to do print journalism is I briefly tried, I dipped my toe in it with sort of student journalism whilst at university and just found it really annoying and obnoxious so I thought I'd rather not write stuff I'd rather uh, do stuff that's a bit more you know which takes a little bit more time um, and that actually usually requires you you know having to go somewhere and meeting interesting people that's the advantage that you have with documentary if you're a print journalist or if you just do the written word so much of it can be over the phone um, and yeah I think I think that came in when I was just leaving university, I then was presented with these choices, and I just started writing to British production companies who'd made films I liked, um, and that's sort of where I began. But it was odd, because I don't come from a strictly film school background. I'm not very technical. I mean, I can pick up a camera, just about, um, and I can, you know, frame a shot and, and note that the red button is usually the record one. <laughs> but uh, but uh, my interest is much more the kind of the story Um uh, and the idea of conveying information and, you know, sounds a bit pompous perhaps, but educating people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed, and that's what documentary does. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really powerful tool for it, actually. Um, there is this old mantra uh, that the BBC had, which was named after its, uh, you know, one of the first director generals the BBC had in the 1920s or whatever, when it was all a brand new thing. Um and he was called Lord Reith, and, you know, we call it the Reithian ideal, which is to, you know, viewers should be educated, informed, and entertained. Mm. And I think a good documentary usually does all three. Um, <laughs> so that's that's kind of what, why it matters to me. Now, what were some of the first pieces of media that you can pinpoint that really had an impact on you? As in... Um, sort of uh, documentary films well film films television yeah. you mentioned you know the BBC's uh, the, the Attenborough films uh, especially uh, any specific ones yeah I can remember there were a few key ones where I just thought wow this has really changed the way I've sort of started to look at the world one is uh, uh, the series all of the series really by the British filmmaker called Adam Curtis I started uh, becoming really interested in him when I was a teenager. There's one film, especially if uh, people would like to check it out, it's called The Power of Nightmares. It's pretty hard going to watch, but Adam Curtis is a very distinctive, um, you know, almost uh, video essay style um, uh, film or filmmaking where it's, it's just his voice with a few interviews and lots of quite impressionistic and weird bits of archive footage all um, threaded together uh, with often very, very, very original and quite sort of odd um, soundtracks. And he basically takes you on this kind of cascading, um, you know, political, like, 
uh, I don't want to say diatribe, it's more like a sort of uh, a kind of trippy politics lecture. But they, they're very good at, you know, he, he's very good at bringing together the, the form um, uh, the, uh, of documentary and marrying it with interesting content. So you've got wonderful, weird archive, and he's telling you about, you know, the kind of the grim bits of American foreign policy and the war on terror and stuff and how these things have kind of come to be, but does it in a very almost playful way. It's very hard to describe his style. I would only urge uh, listeners to go check it out. Um, his films definitely left an impact with me. There were others, though, as well. I used to, I, you know, one of the series that I also really loved as a little boy, I think my grandfather first watched it with me, is a famous um, British documentary series called The World at War which was produced by Granada in the 1970s. Um, and it's just the big kind of comprehensive British telling of the Second World War as told by people from all sides. And of course, because it was done in the 1970s, all the people were still alive. So you had, you know, leading German generals. Right, right. Leading Russians. And, and, and they did a whole episode in Japan and the war in North Africa and stuff. It's just the kind of high watermark of like history documentary. And while I love the Adam Curtis uh, sort of style, or and I love like films by Vanessa um, Eagleton, who's a wonderful observational filmmaker, in the end, the programs I tend to make now mostly are, you know, using interviews from people from different sides of a thing, um, that, and then you you stitch them together to take viewers on a on a on, you know on a on a sort of bit of a journey, and in that sense, the World of War is definitely one which has really left a lasting impression because I kind of try to make films that approximate that. Of course, they never, nothing could ever be as good as that series, in my view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Question for you. Um, and I'll, I always like to throw some fun questions in between because it, we, we get to see who you are, uh, not just as a filmmaker, but as a person. What was the uh, musical taste of Nicholas de Taranto in your, in your teens, especially? Who are you oh, listening to? My- I, I was a I, I, so I played in a band in high school, um, so I loved all things like guitar, rock music. I had, you know, I used to wear a leather. I like, you know, I looked like a kind of weird British Ramon brother. I used to wear like, you know, I had really long hair. I wore skin tight jeans and a leather jacket and sort of uh, always converses. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean. I loved, um, you know, I was growing up at a time when the kind of indie revival was really taking off. So bands like the White Stripes, we, mm-hmm. uh, early Kings of Leon were huge for us. But my friends and I, we also loved all 60s music. We loved, um, you know, funk. We loved all the punk. Uh, anything which had a guitar in it, um, you know, metal, you name it. Um, the one thing that I didn't like... Um, I remember, uh, this, for some reason, you know what teenagers can be like? You just draw like a line in the sand and say, this is something that I will not stand for. I couldn't get my head around emo. I absolutely hated <laughs> <to be> emo. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I loved, I loved, you know, I, you know, as long as I had like a rock guitar in it and a drum set, I was pretty open to anything. Um, but yeah, emo was just not okay. But yeah. No, uh, more, no was, movie for you? No, I did. So this is the thing, actually. Then as I got older... Um, Dusseldorf is the city of Kraftwerk. You know, that's where it's really the birthplace of modern electronic music. And that is still there. There's a big subculture that especially um, all hinged around uh, a place that I started going to called Salon des Amateurs, which is a sort of, you know, 
bar nightclub kind of spot and that's where you still have loads of interesting electronic music acts and actually as i got older then i did start liking that kind of stuff a lot as well um but yeah my my early teenage years were you know um pretty pretty uh pretty rock heavy <laughs> got it got it so when did you in your in your estimation when did you start to develop your skills um as a filmmaker when did you first start touching cameras and start putting stories together was it after university after the history degree or was it prior, uh, before university uh no it was definitely after university but literally right after university um like this i think two months after graduating a friend of mine who's called alex hyde who's also since become a you know he's had a really uh glittering and illustrious career he works in the states now um but we we both lived together at uni and we're both kind of coming up with his interests in documentaries at the same time and just watching loads and loads of films together um instead of studying for our exams uh, so we had an idea that uh, we should try and do something. And now Alf had a, a basic DSLR camera, and and we got our hands on another one. And I had an idea for doing a little film about something, um, uh, which played on the fact that we could speak German um, um, and, and utilize that to get to an interesting story. And the story that I got to was uh, there's a little village in or used to be, you know, communist East Germany, in a very remote corner of it, um, called Yamu, um, mm. sort of n- near the Baltic coast. And that village, I mean, it's tiny, it's only about eight houses, but sort of six of those eight houses are all uh, lived in by like people who are openly neo-Nazi. It's become quite a, a shocking kind of thing that you see people having those views again, in such a, you know, so publicly in Germany. Um, so... What we got interested in is the fact that there's a, a really great couple who are basically a pair of old hippies called Horst and Birgit Lohmeyer, and they live um, uh, in this village, and when they moved there, they started to realize, oh my gosh, everyone here is neo-Nazi, except for us, we need to do something about this. So they started putting on an annual festival, um, which, uh, you know, where like local kids would come to, they'd get some bands, and the whole point was, this is a celebration of diversity, of you know openness of all the things that um that those nazis who live in that town in that village uh are against and we think we, we think this is so cool that you do this Quite we brief. come and interview you and they let us and that was really really exciting and the fact that they said of course you can come um made me realize like look people are open to talking to you you just need to ask and then you know we stayed there for three days followed the festival it was really fun we interviewed them and interviewed the bands and then, you know, we got back and over a couple of weeks we cut together a little 10-minute film. Um, and, it, you know, uh, I look back, I haven't watched it in years. I'm sure it'll make me cringe if I do now. But it was cool and we submitted it to this thing that the British Film Institute, the BFI, um, has, which is a, uh, it was a sort of, you know, a, a British, it's the BFI Future Film Fest and it was, you know, open to people who are starting out who've made their own little films and you know it, uh, they screened it it was shortlisted as one of the best um, of that year and that's sort of what helped give us the first um, you know that was that was the first kind of real tangible bit of, for me in um, coming into that into that field awesome awesome uh, imagine how that happened <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. I mean, the thing is, I keep up with Horstenberger, actually. And tragically, so the year after we were there, their house got burned down. Oh, no. Um, by Nazis, right, who wanted to, like, you know, no more, no more open defiance. But, which is awful. It was an awful tragedy. But, and then they, they turned it around, actually. And what happened that year, or the year after, is one of Germany's biggest bands went and played there for free. And that's now started a, a tradition where you get, like, really, really big name acts go and play there for free. Um, and, yeah, they're, they've gone from strength to strength. And, you know, in these dark days, that kind of stuff is all the more important. <laughs> so, yeah. But you can sort of see all the things that I get, I'm interested in when it comes to my films, uh, stuff that, you know, my, the projects that I work on. It's usually stuff that deals with the kind of, um, you know, I, I, I try to find moments of lightness, but, but I'm also quite interested in topics that do relate to crime, to dictatorship, to, to violence, if I'm honest. So um, I'm quite interested in the darker stuff, if that makes sense. Mm. And yeah, you can kind of see, it's interesting when you realise that later on. <laughs> um, and you see, I was like, oh yeah, I was sort of doing that in the, the first time I picked up a camera. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. Now, here's a question for you. Why... Why the and you even went to, to you even studied English and history in a world that's so gimme 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 and uh, you know finances is readily available as as a degree. Why stick to the arts when the world is telling you to go into tech, finance, or or, or you know science or engineering? STEM, yeah, become choose one of the STEM ones. Go into science, tech, yeah, uh, economics. I know, and you know, as if it's not bad enough that I'm just interested in the past, but I just like read a load of old books as well. It's so, uh, yeah. So, 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 so what? So what? So what really prompted you? <laughs> what really prompted you to continue along the path? Although, you know, the world was saying go STEM. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I was. I can't remember who told me this. I really wish I could because it's been very useful advice, um, which I've sort of stuck to ever since. And it was just sort of try to focus on what you like doing, what you're interested in, because that then in itself helps sustain you. Um, if you like studying history um, because you think history is interesting and important, that's good. Do it. And if you then like that stuff so much, what if you make documentaries that deal with history? It's still a kind of continuation of, of that. But beyond that kind of personal gratification, I actually think it's incredibly important. And I think there is a huge amount of public interest in this stuff. We are constantly reevaluating the past, and we need to be talking about that. I mean, if you look at what happened in the UK in the summer, where, you know, during the Black Lives Matter protests, you had uh, slave slaver statues being toppled. Um, you know, the famous Edward Colston one in, in, uh, in Bristol. Like... That opened up a huge debate about history, and it was being driven by young people. You know, people who, you know, there was a huge uh, online petition being signed by all these kids, like real, like school kids, saying we want to learn properly about colonialism. Right? I mean, history is history is a contested and ever growing thing, and just because it happened a long time ago doesn't mean the past is sort of unimportant now. And I think that's kind of that's kind of what I'm also interested in as well. You know, I I would say also more generally people, you know, if you link that into, into the world of documentaries, people are interested in long-form content. They want stuff that has depth. They want to be 
they want theories now. You know, we live in, in, in many ways, it's a great era for documentaries right now, um, where people are watching multi-part um, series, and and a lot of them are history are history shows. And I think it shows that there is a real public appetite for that. Interesting. In the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, um, great African-American a writer, he said, without, without was, nothing is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, no, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's also always been there for me. I mean, you know, like the, the very house I grew up in, the house that my parents still live in, in Germany today, uh, was built during the Third Reich. You know, it was built in the Nazi era. Um, like when you, I remember once they were, they were sort of renovating one of the rooms and they pulled out some of the old plaster. And in the old days, people used to insulate homes, not with their kind of like foam stuff, but they would just use newspaper and straw. And the newspapers that you're pulling out are like, Nazi newspapers because that house was built in 1937. Wow. I I grew up, I mean, that is literally tangible. Like, you're so close to it and you're constantly then thinking, how has that, you know, affected who I am? And indeed, you know, like, the reason I've got this German heritage is because um, my grandfather, who was English, is part of the occupying forces in in Germany after the war. And he meets a nice German Fräulein. That's my grand, who is still alive. (laughs) But, you know, so you're kind of thinking, oh, my gosh, like, I, the very reason I exist has also been so shaped by history. I think, if I'm honest, though, more and more people are thinking along those lines. I think stuff like online genealogy has really helped uh, boost that, I think. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, to bring it back to the media, like, if you work in documentaries and stuff like that, you can contribute to that, too. So I think, you know, it, it does really matter. It really matters politically. And uh, it's totally worth doing no shade against stem i'm also just very bad at maths so <laughs> <laughs> hey most, most of us that ended up in media are trust me <laughs> I know. This, is, this is it yeah i do remember uh yeah what was it my, my dad going you sure you want to go down this path is that is there any money in it and i went well i don't know and he went oh probably not but you're not good with numbers anyway <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> So take us take us along the journey from that first documentary to how you ended up working on uh, pieces for the BBC. Um, I mean, it, you know, it took a while. <laughs> it's it's brutal. I think that's one of the things that the industry, the media industry as a whole, just needs to sort of, you know, Im- improve uh, how it. Re- how it re- how it retains people, um, how it gets uh, them in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I uh, after I was riding high after that film got screened at the BFI, and I was like, great. Like, why why is no one commissioning me to now make a whole program? Uh, uh-uh, it's not how that works. Nope. <laughs> You're like twenty two years old. It actually takes a lot lot longer. So what started happening is I yeah I started writing to some companies who. Um, you know, who had made stuff that I liked, and I, and I asked to meet people, and you kind of doing that networking, and and you know, I look back now, it must have been hilarious because you're showing, you know, you're meeting people who've won really serious awards and stuff, and you're going, you should really hire me. I my my ten minute film just got shown at the BFI. <laughs> like, right. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, jog on. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I, I then I then managed to 
Uh, I got an internship at the BBC's World Service, which is actually a radio division, um, and it's their kind of international <laughs> broadcast. <laughs> Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you, you, yeah, I mean, many of your listeners, I'm sure, especially ones in the Caribbean, will have encountered it in some way um, because it is just such a renowned institution. That was kind of where I was first then interning, um, but it didn't, you know, it didn't really lead to anything. Uh, it was hard. I mean, in those days. I would like intern there part time, like two days a week, and then also go and um, you know work as a tutor, like you know after school tutor and stuff to kind of make ends meet. It was because the BBC stuff was unpaid. Now I think they've all like since that you know since then I think people have gotten a little bit better and the laws have gotten a bit tighter in the UK about unpaid internships. But like I kept encountering that kind of thing again and again. Um, I, I'm trying to remember. It took a while, but eventually, I was I got a job at a uh, um, an independent production company called Tiger Aspect, and that's where I then you know could settle down for a bit, and that was nice. And I was being paid. It wasn't great, but it was something. And it was a you know there, it was a production company which was full of really nice and talented people. And it was, I worked primarily on a show that was, um, you know, about people restoring old buildings and they had these little, it was like an architecture or a design show, really, a property show. But I had these bits in each show which where you learn about the history of the building. Um, and that was kind of my, the stuff I was given, the stuff I was had to like, had to work up and stuff. I worked on that thing for two, three years or two and a half years. Um, and that was just a great learning curve. And after having gone and hopped around and done so much unpaid work, it was just nice to be, in one place where you could be looked after for for a while, um, yeah, and yeah, that, that was that was definitely where I could first kind of cut my teeth. As mm-hmm. it was. How how excited were you when you finally got credit on one of those BBC docs? Well, so that <laughs> <laughs> so that I mean, like the Tiger Aspect one. Uh, I mean, I, the first series I worked on there was for, uh, for Channel 4, and it wasn't quite, if I'm honest, what I wanted to make. And I think this is probably something that happens for a lot of people, right? You you kind of, you're getting closer. Like, I was making a show that had a bit of interesting history in it, uh, but it wasn't the great history series that I, would like, really wanted to work on. It was like a property show where people, it's like mainly about people who would like do up an old barn or something and be like, look, I've turned it into a nice new house. And I'd be like, okay, but we're going to have one sequence where we learn about, you know, uh, medieval barns, all right? And everyone's like, yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was like I had a little, I had these little like five minute sort of segments within another show where I could kind of do what I was wanted to do. But it was, it was great. I mean, it, it affirmed to you what kind of shows you do want to do and what kind of shows you don't want <laughs> yeah 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 and um i actually then i mean i'm trying to think i'd had little smaller credits on other bbc things but the the one that i was then gonna be i you know i worked my way up at tiger aspect to uh, assistant producer and then they did offer me a uh, a bbc uh, a job for a bbc so the way it works is in the uk and i think a lot of other countries you know you um different production companies they they take over a production on and sell it to different broadcasters or get commissioned by different broadcasters to work on on stuff. So my first job at Tiger Aspect was on one UK channel and then the next one was actually for the BBC. It was a BBC production and I I was was pretty stoked. Um, It was all happening very, very quickly 
but I, I you know I was a I just kind of moved up to the level of assistant producer and they said do and you know I, they asked me to do it and uh, <laughs> this is this is no joke but that the name of that um of that production was Island Parish um and <laughs> yeah that that was kind of where um you know that was the really the first apart from a few smaller very little bit things I'd done on other BBC things BBC things that was the first time I was on a proper uh, BBC series. Um, yeah. Um, so so do, that's sort of where that moment happened for me. So do tell us about your experience on an island parish. The BBC yeah. told you to pack your bags and you're going to this... Well, well, quick question. Had you heard of Anguilla before? No, I hadn't. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very embarrassed to say, but I, I had not heard about it until I was asked... Um, look, do you want to come and work on this series? Uh, it was, I mean, I remember it, I, it was very, very quick. I think I just finished on on the one series and then I think I had something like two weeks or even less, a week possibly, to decide and get my life in order. Um, uh, so it was, it was like a blur. Um, and I was then like cramming in and trying to learn all about Anguilla and, you know, where the Lesser Antilles are. <laughs> <laughs> Were you were you were you uh, smitten when you saw the pictures of the beaches? Or yeah, no, I mean, I was obviously, you know, everyone was sort of saying, "Buddy, this is the best job in television that you just landed," because you, you, they're sending you out. They're step, sorry, you're getting paid to spend four months or whatever on on Anguilla, and I went, "Yep, sorry." <laughs> um, so I was I was super excited. I'd never been to the Caribbean before. So this was also all super new for me, um, and you know, I, I, I'd never sort of worked abroad um, for that for that amount of time as well. I'd also not really worked on a style of show like Island Parish. I mean, as I was describing, my kind of background had been uh, current affairs and, and history stuff, um, whereas Island Parish is a is a sort of you know very very sort of gentle observational uh, documentary series and i mean i probably wouldn't have taken it on be normally uh, um had it not been anguilla because normally um island parish is always you know that the, traditionally the series has been about one of the small island community communities off um you know mainland britain so right. like the orkneys or shetlands or whatever they did do one series about the falklands and you know island parish as a concept has been going on for I think six or seven years, possibly longer, maybe even close to 10 by the time uh, Island Parish Anguilla was then commissioned. So that was the idea. Um, and I mean, you know, yeah, Anguilla just looked and so amazing that uh, I wasn't, I wasn't going to say no. Um, but yeah, uh, that was, you know, uh, that's where, that's where our, that's where our world sort of first intersected, uh, Crispin. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> So now, it, as you were speaking, I, I I got a question in my head for you. And so from what you were saying, it begs the question, how did you, uh, knowing that Anguilla is a British colony, how did, you, how did you and your crew, how did you feel about it being so Americanized? How, how, did, I, how did I feel about Anguilla being Americanized? Well, I mean, in the first sense, it did mean uh, that the BBC brand perhaps didn't quite have the like cut through that we thought when we got there. Um, but I actually think that if I step back, I mean, look, I absolutely loved Anguilla. I love my time there. I met 
so many wonderful people and I did indeed have the best job in television at that, with all that said and I think the show did you know try to do many nice things for the island there are bits though I think the the show got Anguilla wrong because the show went in with very preconceived ideas and I think actually the fact that like it you know everyone had blindly assumed that because there's a union flag on Anguilla's flag that it is just you know a, a very British style island like Super this, British. this reading of what like um <laughs> Of what you know, Carib- you know, the modern Caribbean is completely. Um, so you've actually tapped into. It's not a simple question. You've sort of tapped into a big thing about um, the way Island Parish works. Because think about it. It was basically um, it, it was a series that had a long legacy of doing the Orkneys, the Shetlands, the Scilly Isles, all these you know actual British culturally. Like, culturally, those islands are very, very British. They are. They, they, I mean, they, they are. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're off the mainland of, of, the, of the bigger island of Britain. <laughs> right. You know, um, um, uh, now the, the assumption was like, oh, we can do this again, but this time it'll be Caribbean. And, and you know, it'll be, and, 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 but it'll still have all those same things. And I think, um, you know, it's not so much that like Anguilla was like more Americanized. I think a big part of the show that got it wrong was it just didn't think that Anguilla had, you know, Obviously, would have its own Anguillian culture and its own Anguillian uh, culture, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's interesting. Like, I mean, this is the first time I'm kind of going on the record and talking about. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't, I have nothing to hide as such. But this, this is the first time I'm going on the record, really, to talk as a, someone who worked on that show about like the, what that show kind of you know got wrong. And I think there were some bits that it did get wrong. I mean, it it is. Like, it didn't get wrong what, you know, Anguillian culture actually is. And I think it also just got a lot of other stuff very wrong about what British audiences at home would want. Um, and I think one of the things that you really see that in is um, the fact that the people that the, um, that the producers back in London, so us out there in the field, we didn't have very much agency. It was just sort of, you go do this, please. The, the, the people in London were kind of especially interested in following. We were saying, well, you know, we've not actually got that many Anguillians in this. Like, there is a lot of, you know, and we're following a lot of expats. And, um, you know, that then also gets you into a problem of representation. Right, right. What's, you what know, what is the real story? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're including, um, and I mean, it's not just about, like, the nationality. It's also, like, you know, you could physically very uh, obviously see it because you're including white faces when uh, who are expats when Anguilla is you know uh, what, what's the demographics it's like uh, 95% <laughs> African descendant <laughs> yeah I don't think we um, you know we didn't capture those those um, um, you know in that sense it did not reflect what the island actually looks like so um, so, so in, in essence right it, it begs this is a very deep conversation because it it begs the the question about the perception of you know well Caribbean people and black people in the UK you know and what what they expected to show you know just yeah. sitting just sitting at a desk they kind of came up with their own narrative would you say and then just said okay yeah go ahead and capture this this is what this I, is what we want to see not what I it mean, is but what we want to see yeah I like I think that within what what we're talking about here which is the production of a very gentle and quite sweet and soft like program you know it's aimed at like 
this the target audience are like the over 60s and i think it comes out on a, on a sunday you know um but what we're talking about here are the structural things that like british media and i think you probably also say about american media media production across uh ac- across the like anglophone world um how they just do not understand representation and and like diversity and like you know you just see i i was very young at the time when i went out there i think i was only 25 or something and i remember just saying you know why 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 are the, our stories so skewed but i think you're right it says something about the structural kind of inequalities and you know for one of a better word uh structural racism that you see in in broadcasting and commissioning when um a preconceived idea is going to be like mapped on grafted on to uh, a place which is not you know that's not that you're not doing any documenting in that documentary you're just projecting <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and i think you know you can see that in this and i remember having calls when i said like why are we you know should we have more anguillians in there and i literally had one um one of the persons who was higher up in london saying we're worried if it's not um you know we, we're worried our, our domestic audience might not watch it if it's if it's not going to white British people in it. And I was thinking, you've got to be joking. <laughs> you've got to be well, so, joking. So, so it's rem- reminiscent of, again, MTV. Back in the 80s, they wouldn't show any any black music videos. And there's a famous, famous piece of video where um, David Bowie sits down. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm sure you've seen it. And, and he asks, you know, why, why aren't there any black artists on... MTV, when obviously there's a fair amount of, of great black artists on radio, and many white artists emulate and are inspired by these black artists, why why don't they have a chance on MTV? And the, the response from the producer or the person asking the questions in the background, they, they sort of said, well, you know, it's a matter of demographics, and um, also... You know, we have to be careful of, 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 you know, we have to be conscious of who our audience is. And can you can you imagine the the white Midwestern mother seeing a black face on television, which obviously is the most racist thing that you could possibly see. <laughs> but, you know, he just thought it was like you're being racist and you're assuming so is the rest of the world. Right. Maybe. Right. And, and, <laughs> and they didn't put any black um, Michael Jackson, obviously colossal seller of records worldwide and he didn't even have a video on mtv and cbs records who he was signed to they're the ones that got him on mtv they, they said to mtv if you don't put michael jackson's video on we're, we're going to pull every single video from the rest of our artists off of your network and that's when they made the move yeah 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 so interesting but i mean you know what we're, what we're talking about there is like those are the titans of like the media industry and what i'm kind of i guess i'm talking about is that i experienced just in, in the making of what is i love island parish and i love Anguilla, but it wasn't like gonna be hard-hitting journalism it's not like a big show with an agenda it's just it's just a gentle portrait of life there and even in something as like innocuous as that you were seeing all these kind of weird things happening mm-hmm. uh, and, well they're not weird actually that's the problem they were very very typical i also think it's interesting that this sort of stuff now people are so much more aware of i I kind of in some ways i wonder if it was a last you know a last (laughs) bit of like working with some real old dinosaurs basically right right um and like like little things like we didn't even have you know any uh british caribbean people 
on our on our team. Like that's outrageous. Woo! <laughs> you know, like and that obviously also means you're not. It's not an informed enough piece about what's going on and and, and you know what what like because, what because the, the, the narrative the narrative wasn't even. Um... I, but it taught me a lot about how things uh, um, you know should and shouldn't be made. And I think one thing that was interesting is um, there was a bit of a uh, a cull. Um, I mean, I, I left Tiger Aspect after two and a half years, sort of while I was doing that show, and I was just saying, look, I can't, I don't, I, I mean, I, I've been out for four months now. I just moved in with my girlfriend, and at that point, I'd lived on Anguilla longer than in our in our uh, in our apartment together. <laughs> um, and so I said, I, look, I, I, I'm going to have to uh, kind of ask that I move on, and and I did, and we all left on good terms. So I didn't really see any of the show kind of going through the edit and stuff. Um, and I left Tiger Aspect to just, I went, you know, for pastures anew. Um, but I do know that after Anguilla came out, after Island Parish came out, um, you know, I think uh, I think some of the people who had been quite senior, who'd made some of the decisions on it, um, I don't think they, they kind of fell out of favour with the BBC because the BBC also learned why, like, the show had not kind of delivered um, what they had thought it, uh, and ho- hoped for. It is interesting, though, because they obviously did care about Anguilla because what then did get made a couple of years later was Anguilla After the Storm, which I did have uh, a hand in, not so much making, but I helped set it up. So I just connected, you know, um, the new t- crew uh, with the people that I'd worked with. And that, I thought, actually got it so much better. <laughs> that was enjoyable. Was I will so, say that was it, that was very enjoyable. Yeah, and I mean, it sounds silly. Oh, it sounds not silly, but it sounds odd because it's a film about, you know, how Anguilla was devastated. Uh, but I think there you're, in a way, because it was slightly more serious subject matter, that changed the whole tone of the show. And it, I think it started to treat the island with much more dignity. It wasn't going to be as sort of silly and cutesy, obviously, as as Island Parish, but also meant it did other. It, made, it didn't make other mistakes where, like it, you know, it featured the governor, and you know, it had government sort of ministers and stuff like that in it. Um, it took it seriously, but it also just put much more prominently Anguillian voices front centre. And I think you know, it, I, I'm happy that that film got made because I feel like that was a much more. That kind of also, in my mind, somewhat redeemed <laughs> some of the problems that, um, you know, the first Iron Parish uh, series about Anguilla actually had. And I'm glad that that's also the one that has, like, remained in people's memories in the UK. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell us a bit about your Italian mafia projects. This, yes. this is intriguing yeah, to me. Right. So, so, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Like, as I said, um, Island Parish was a bit of a departure for me because I don't really do, uh, uh, you know, observational filmmaking. I kind of do interview-driven stuff normally. And that's kind of what I got stuck into. So the years after Anguilla, I, I really just got well into that. And I did a, one big project about, you know, uh, the, the last 10 years of EU history for the BBC that involved doing loads of interviews with with big-name politicians, like literally heads of state and stuff. I, um, I tried to get Angela Merkel. I couldn't get her, but I got almost all the other big German politicians. Um, so I spoke to them. And then I, after that, I did another series where they said, you know, you, know, you can find difficult-to-reach people like big-name politicians, and you can, you, you've got a track record of interviewing them, and you know how to get their different interviews to flow together to create a narrative. So would you like to do something like that, but this time about... Um, 
Narcos. <laughs> At that point, I was like, okay, I really am a world away from Anguilla now. <laughs> this is not interviewing Bishop Brooks on a sunny beach anymore. But I thought, okay, I'll take it. So I did a thing about Narcos, and that's kind of come out in Nas- on National Geographic at the end of, the, of this year, so in December 2020. Um, and, you know, we did a history of Colombian and Mexican cartels. Now, off the back of that, um, National Geographic said, you know, this is really cool. We like what you did. Could you do something about the mob? <laughs> so we went, yeah, okay. So now I've kind of been doing a, uh, yeah, series where we've been speaking to mobsters um, and interviewing them remotely, which is strange. This is the brave new world that even even intrepid documentary uh, makers now find themselves in. Uh, but we speak to, yeah, we've been trying to speak to people who... Uh, we're on both sides of the law. We're in the mafia. Criminals who work with the mafia were um, uh, cops who who helped take them, um, who you know who t- took them down, and um, you know it's it's been very very interesting. I've had some pretty wild phone calls. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, do, I do I do remember my girlfriend. And it's weird doing all from working from home because you've got. Um, you know, you'll be making a cup of tea, <laughs> and um, well, my my girlfriend will be making a cup of tea. Sorry, and I'll be like, look, I've got a pretty heavy mobster coming up on a Zoom call. Um, I, I'm in the kitchen. I'm like, I don't know if you want to be in the background while <laughs> making a cup of tea with that. She's like, no, 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 thanks. <laughs> so it's just weird doing it all from your home, but it is very interesting because these are these aren't of- these aren't characters that you write about. These are legit human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing I like most about documentary, you know, it's just, I mean, well, I, I, I like lots of things about documentary, that's why I do it, but one of the, the, the real pluses that it has just for you as someone who gets to make them is you have, like, the wonderful privilege of getting to meet all these people and getting them to meet them, usually you go to the places where they are, and then that's really interesting because, yeah, you are seeing, you know, people like that up close. Um, I mean... Uh, one thing I've 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 learned over the years is that it's very funny that you'll meet, you know, people who've done horrendous things can be quite easy to get along with. In the same way that people who are perfectly good and law abiding can be quite hard to get along with when yeah. you're doing an interview. If that makes sense. Yeah. And you have to. I mean, I'm I'm not quite there to do to, to do the moral judgments and stuff. Um, that's not really what I think my role is. But I've just noticed it as an experience of when you're doing these interviews. Um. But yeah, no, we've met some. Uh, I mean, my 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 phone contacts is uh, is just a bit weird because it's just like politicians, <laughs> criminals. Um, I think I'm the only person in the world I really do who's interviewed like Wolfgang Schäuble, who was the fearsome finance minister of Germany, who um, who like you know who really controlled the euro uh, for ten years. He was the one who insisted the Greeks go through all of this austerity. I think I'm the only person who's got his number. Unlike a bunch of Mexican Sicarios <laughs> on that same phone. <laughs> hey, you 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 wonder if they have each other's numbers? Well, uh, this is it. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know, but I, I think this is the thing, though. But seriously, it gets to that point of like, this is what I love about docs, you know, about documentaries, because I get to, I get to be in a room with these comp- people who've come from completely different walks of life. Um, but in the end, they're all there's something very democratizing about the fact that like you stick them on camera and then they are just a person who's telling you something in the end and for some people in the audience it's obviously much more interesting to hear 
from a Mexican cartel member than it is to hear from the uh, finance minister of Germany. <laughs> That's hilarious. Tell me, and you're dealing with Mexicans and Italian um, mafia members for these documentaries. What, what are some of the quirks about American culture that you've noticed, especially as you've traveled through the country? Yeah, um, quirks about American culture. I mean, there is, I find there's an interesting thing in America where when you speak to people like Mexican gangsters or um, Italian gangsters, they're very much, you know, I am an American, but I am also this. And um, in fact, that part of their identity is, um, um, you know, I am uh, an American and a patriot, but I'm also very proud of being Italian because that's what also helps me justify this life that I lead, that it's part of a, a long culture and a tradition that I come from. Similar with uh, Mexican drug traffickers, like, yes, I'm an American, I work in America, but it is important that I have these, uh, you know, Mexican roots or these Colombian roots. These two things coexist. And I think that you, that's especially strong in criminals. I mean, because it's a way that they, like I said, they, they can justify and explain themselves. You know, I'm, I'm part of a long lineage of great narcos that have been able to make money. Um, I'm part of a, you know, our, our, you know, Gambino crime family goes back almost a hundred years and we know how to live this life. And so the reason I bring that up is I actually started to realize that that extends to all parts of American identity and culture in that like it's so interesting how often to be american is to be both you know have a dual thing where you're like i cling on to my americanness but i'm also so many other things that make me up i mean every cop i talk to every like dea agent or fbi agent there's always a point at which they tell me where initially they're from or if they're irish or that they're german or that they also have scotch in them and i think that is quite interesting i mean it, maybe it's just something that resonates with me personally because in many ways I feel a bit like that as well, I've realised, in that I'm unusual for an English person who grew up in another European country and has the last name from yet another European country. Right. But, but like, if I was American, that would all make total sense. Of course you could, you could say, like, oh, yeah, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, German-British-Italian. <laughs> yeah, no, and, yeah, and, and, that's, and, that's, and that definitely is, is a thing in America. Like, what are you? Oh, I'm, I'm Scottish, Irish, Italian, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that is one of the things which I kind of love. It's the classic sort of, you know, yeah, it's all the cliches about America being a melting pot and stuff, but all that, you know, all you have that perception of you're European, that American identity, American patriotism is so all totalizing and consuming. But I actually think what's so fascinating is that across that country, there are constant bits where it's hard to sort of place, ident you know, uh, your identity in as one thing or another. And I think that's what makes it very rich and, like, very, very varied. The other uh, quirk, though, um, is that, man, you guys use a lot of plastic. <laughs> 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 that's the other thing I noticed. That's I interesting. God, in, in, in what way? Well, like, in packaging and stuff. Whoa, there's so much. It's like, well, I think I find weird is that sometimes people in offices, like, in an office, will have, like, I've seen this, will have, like, disposable cups. Or, like, you're staying at a hotel and you want to get a coffee and you ask for one and they just give it to you in a disposable cup or like hotel breakfast bars. It's like all on plastic cutlery. I mean, if you're not staying in very nice hotels, you, yeah, know, yeah, you know, when yeah, you're yeah. on the road and you're, you're staying at Best Westerns and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm just like, this is so wasteful. This is just so, it makes my eyes hurt. Like, why can't I just have it like, 
can't you serve me something in a normal cup, like a porcelain cup that you wash, and it's not like you're producing new landfill every time somebody has a coffee. <laughs> well, I, see, I, see, I think Americans are always on the run as well. So, what, what? oh, totally, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think, you know, there is a much bigger busyness. Like, there's a sense of busyness, and like, you probably, yeah, you never have full time to sit down and have a whole coffee, which you know, the, London is a bit like that. London sort of. It's a very fast-paced city. And oh, stuff. indeed, indeed. But but other European places, like you know, that's a sin uh, to to rush a, a nice coffee. Um, you know, you don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, tell me, Nicholas, what advice would you have for for young filmmakers? For young filmmakers, what I would advise is that you um, figure out what topics you're interested in and like just build on them because what ends up happening is you never know like it's you you won't get asked to make your ideal film you know it, it doesn't happen like that you need to kind of make that happen so try and um find people who do work that you want to do as well and try and work with them and use that as your way to to building up a contact uh uh, uh, list and, and, and making a name for yourself so eventually you can make your ideal film and so what I kind of would therefore say is like you need to work on other people's stuff and make a name for yourself before you can finally kind of make the thing that you really want to make for yourself if that makes sense um, but don't lose sight of what you really want to make so if you've got an idea and you've got an interesting person for an interview maintain that relationship I've got a couple little projects where I've been sort of I mean, they're babies. They're, they're, they're the germs of an idea. They don't really exist yet. But I've been speaking to a couple of people about this idea or this idea. And, you know, in docs, those are often, that means you're talking to a real person who's got a real interesting story. And you're trying to keep them sweet. And you're just trying to say, look, I will, I one day will make a film about this. I promise. Um, I, and I, I, it was great. It was great to meet you. But I just need to, you know, uh, let's, let's check in soon again. Um, and it's that kind of thing that I would suggest that, uh, yeah, young filmmakers do like work with other people to get the experience, but look at um, do not lose sight of what your own ideas are. Awesome, love the advice. And you've traveled extensively, camera in hand, uh, you know, notes in hand. Where are some of the places that stand out to you, like that you really enjoyed or or kind of struck a chord with you? Well, I mean, obviously Anguilla. Like, <laughs> there is no place I've stayed for. Like, there's no one single other location that I've ever stayed that long. Um, and, you know, I think I can still do, I can still do the whole, I, uh, I saw every nook and cranny of that island, I feel. <laughs> it was so cool. I mean, I, I used to be able to draw a map and I could probably do all of Anguilla, like, by hand. I reckon I still can. And, you know, we went from... We we also went to like Zombrero Island and stuff like that while we and, were and I've we never been, I've never been to Zombrero. Yeah, and see, that's that's the real documentary maker privilege because you just go, can we can we see this? And they do, <laughs> they do. Usually those things can happen. That was that was awesome. I mean, that was probably one of the weirdest spots I've ever been to in my life. Oh, I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's no beach. You have to jump off of the boat onto a ladder. No, I try and do that with a camera. <laughs> and you miss, and if you miss, you miss. Yeah, 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 you are stuffed. <laughs> I tell you, one of the weirdest things about the island was it had these funny lizards. Um, I, I read somewhere that I think those lizards are like native only to Zombrero, right? Uh -huh. and, and the weirdest thing about them is they've barely encountered humans. So they're not freaked out by people. 
So you could just go and pick them up. <laughs> like this extraordinary little lizard. Oh, it was such a weird place. Fascinating. But as a whole, obviously, I, I was I was completely blown away by Anguilla's beauty, its warmth, its hospitality, its cultural richness, the amazing cuisine, and, of course, its wonderful, wonderful people. The, tor- the, 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 the tourist board should hire you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really, I mean... I, yeah, that's why I feel bad about how Island Parish went, you know. Like, I just think it didn't do such a wonderful place justice, if that makes sense. Mm. But other than, other than Anguilla, I mean, it's funny. I've been to some places that are stupendous natural beauty. Uh, bits of the Sonora Desert between you know, Mexico and Arizona. I love that. I loved traveling to Istanbul. Um, those are also really you know really wonderful so sometimes you just get to see nice cities but then it would be a lie to say it's also not just going to places that are otherwise completely off limits to other people uh to the to the general public or that can be quite disturbing almost i mean you know i filmed at auschwitz the the Mm. the nazi concentration camp that's that's that was really that was really hard going. And I mean, how, how was, how was the energy there? Cause you know, sometimes people say you can like feel that something bad happened. Yeah. It's very, I mean, we were there. Well, this is, so we, you get to film there. Um, as long as it stays light. So we stayed there and it closed, they closed the grounds at like five o'clock. We had another two hours or so to just get all those shots. And we'd been there at dawn as well to get all the shots there before the, you know, the people, people the tourists or visitors rather mourners come to see it and then you can feel that ghostliness um and it was uh, yeah you can feel the 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 monstrous things that happened there it is it is very 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 hard um the other thing that we'd been what this is on a documentary i did for the bbc which was about you know music and in the holocaust and we'd actually interviewed uh an amazing uh, cellist called Anita Lasca Valfish, who um, who was made to play the cello for. She was she's Jewish. She was named Mate Auschwitz. She was made to play the cello for Josef Mengele, who was the the angel of death, um, a, a doctor who ex- conducted all these a Nazi doctor who conducted all these cruel experiments on on uh, inmates of Auschwitz. So we would be, we knew exactly where she had been, um, you know, housed. I mean, barely housed, but where she'd been incarcerated. What we knew what her routine was, and we knew where she uh, had to play uh, uh, her cello pieces to to mingle it. Now, it, and I, that for me, because I'd met her and then gone there, because I knew her very specific story, and to then think that there were, you know, in Auschwitz alone, I think there were another million other Shit. stories like that. You know, uh, that's that's what what makes and and, and Anita survived, which only a tiny percentage of you know, people went there did. So they, they, when you're in a place like that, it's not, you know, as I said, it's a world away from Anguilla, but it's also one where you think, oh my gosh, I've been, I've, I've been allowed to have this experience, which has really sort of forged me as a person and that's in order to do my work. So I love that. The, uh, and they, okay, just a, as a little uh, sort of side note, the, the craziest place I've ever been to, the weirdest, are the tunnels underneath Valletta in Malta, uh, which are completely sealed off from the public. We were there filming a National Geographic doc about um, uh, about Malta during World War Two. I do, so I do love World War Two stuff. As yeah, well. um, and um, yeah, uh, people built these tunnels underneath Valletta, which is an ancient city, and they've not been really entered since the 1940s 
and so they're a perfect time capsule. You can see still see like graffiti on the walls, like, and they are enormous. They map the grid of the street above. Like they were hand dug as air raid shelters because Malta was so heavily bombed, uh... and and they've not no one's and no one really knows the full extent, or they, they, it's really hard to to map that. And we got to go into those, and no one, you know, people haven't been down there. You in never decades. know. You never know what's hiding under there. Well, it was pretty freaky. I'm not gonna lie. Um, it was very disorientating. Like it's um, yeah, but I, I mean, you know, amazing. Like mm-hmm. uh, right underneath this ancient um, European city. So yeah, but I have I've been uh, blessed enough to to see some really special places. Indeed, actually, I mean Auschwitz. I mean, I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C., and that alone was troubling to say the least. Um, have not made it to the African American Museum as yet, and as a person that is, you know, African, I know that it's going to be more than disturbing. <laughs> yeah, when I yeah, pass certain no, I, parts of it, you know, certain exhibits. Oh, for sure. I think you've got to. I don't know. The older I get, the more I, I'm, I'm kind of like I've got this belief now that you just have to allow yourself. You you, you mustn't try and suppress those those uh, emotions. You must you must be ready for it to be disturbed. If that makes sense, no, of course. You've got to accept that it's going to be it's going to be troubling. It's going to make you sad. It's going to make you angry. Um, but that also matters. I think there's a similar sort of impulse that goes into to documentary filmmaking. You can't. You have to confront the things that other people don't want to in order to make a good film. And like. Um, you know, and I think that's also what ends up moving you and changing you and helping you grow and evolve as a person. But yeah, no, it's uh, you've you've got to see stuff that, and especially it's interesting. We keep going back to these things that are uh, again relate to what we talk about history before as well. Like I think that is one place where people want to learn about the past, really, to learn about themselves. Um, and you know, that's also where you often find some of the the toughest feelings you have to work through. <laughs> Interesting, interesting, interesting stuff. Do you consider yourself an activist? Uh, an activist filmmaker? No, probably not. I, I think I am. Um, uh, I'm more quiet than that. I don't like. I'm never in any of the things I work on. You never hear my voice. I, I, I keep. You know, I keep. Uh, I keep very much behind the camera. Now, does that mean I don't care about? Uh, or, you know. Uh, care about issues and politics no of course not i, I I'm, I'm very interested and i'm i you know i and i follow politics very closely i do follow kind of some activism um but i don't kind of bring them together in my field of work i do as a private citizen if that makes sense um, um so you know i yeah i uh, at the risk of blowing away all my kind of you know sort of the, the stated like BBC impartiality rules like I'm you know I'm, I'm left wing and I'm a member of the British Labour Party and I'm in uh, <laughs> trade unions and all the rest of it um, I care about all that stuff I care about those causes but I try to not like make my films overtly about that kind of stuff um, but no I think activism matters um, and I think it's interesting that I can tell you my lifetime you know when I first went to university People were sort of saying, oh my God, what is it with young people these days? They're just not interested in stuff. I remember that was definitely what people thought in like the late 2000s. It was all, you know, young people on your Wii. This is the era of like American beauty. And you remember movies like that? Yeah. Which came out yeah. Which all about like 
which are all about, you know, people haven't given up and nothing really matters anymore because all the big battles have been won. And that's completely changed. <laughs> no oh my gosh, anymore. has it ever. <laughs> there was a nice little, uh, uh, how you say, honeymoon period there. And um, yeah, this was the era when, when reality TV was beginning here in America. This was the when Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton were emerging. Yeah, yeah. It was a sort of, exactly, it was this kind of idea of it, um, you know, uh, young people aren't interested in, in serious stuff. They like reality TV. They like light stuff. Um, they like celebrity. And I think that's all. I don't think people think like that anymore. I don't know. I mean, to bring it back to docs, I um, I remember we were off on some shoot, and um, you know, I was loading. Uh, you know, when you when you come when you're flying off somewhere, you've got a lot of camera kit. You know, you've always got traveling with sort of eighteen bags or whatever, and so it takes ages checking it in. And they you always and you're always there some ungodly hour in the morning because you have to be there hours and hours before. Um, and the very sweet. Uh, woman at the British Airways kind of terminal was going, oh, are you, are you guys filmmakers? And I said, yes, yeah, we are. We make docs. And, and she just went, I love documentaries so much. <laughs> and, you know, it's like five in the morning. She's like 19 years old. And she's just like, have you, have you been watching this series on Netflix? And I was like, yeah, I thought it was really good, didn't you? And she's like, I did. I learned so much about this, this, and this. And I just thought, yes, you know, this, this is, this so is why we do it. Just, yeah, yeah, it's why we do it. People are interested in it. And so, yeah, this is a very kind of perambulating answer to your question about me being an activist. But, like, am I one explicitly? No, I, I work and towards causes in my, like, private life. But I also do think that, you know, again, docs do incite people to be interested in stuff and do things differently. Look at, like, the effect of the 13th or something. That was, I think, you know, when did that come out? 2013? Shot, shot by Hans Charles. Yeah, awesome. Well, shout out. I, I, you need to hook me up because um, that film is just outstanding. But it sort of, you know, it, it tapped into stuff, didn't it? It, I think that film came out and it was possibly, uh, was it then just a bit before the first time? Um, oh, no, okay, that film came out in 2016. Okay, so it's after after Ferguson then, but I mean, look, it's something like that came out. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember what year. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, but like you know, it it brought all of that to a much much wider audience. You know that I mean that is like you asked me before one of the films that I really liked when I was younger, and I gave you them. But like watching the Thirteenth was another one of those ones you're, when you're kind of already working that world but you, that's a sort of galvanizing shot in the arm for you because you see a um the power of uh what a history documentary can do yeah indeed and that that coupled with um Ava DuVernay's film about the Central Park Five yeah. yeah 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 I you know what I was watching uh I, because I've been meaning to watch this film for ages. I was watching uh, Selma today. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I saw that in the theaters. <laughs> uh, yeah, because that's also Ava DuVernay, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think it's interesting. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that needs to be there needs to be more of now because documentaries are a great way for people to to learn, but also you know to to find their voice. And I also think something like documentary and film, you get people like my parents who watch the Thirteenth and really. I mean, enjoy it. It sounds they they are really moved by it and affected by it, and that helps them then rethink of how they view the black experience in America. Now, my parents are two very white, very kind of sheltered Europeans, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
who live in who live in, uh, in you know in uh, in Germany in a not quite as diverse as sort of London kind of city now. I mean, so, you know, they're, they're still you know very open-minded and nice people. But it's just in, in a documentary you can show them something that they might not normally pick up a book for, and I think that's just true generally across the board. Um, and you know, documentaries look better than they have ever done before as well. Like the way they're shot now is to a Hollywood standard, very cinematic. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it is a good age for that um, mm-hmm. to be working at, despite the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Who or what inspires you? Who or what inspires me? Um, I suppose inspiration can can work in two ways, can't it? There are some people who are just you know wonderful examples that you want to follow. Uh, you know, they might be filmmakers that you really uh respect um or people you've worked with um but there is another kind of form of inspiration that just kind of gives me loads of motivation and it's when you see someone like reacting to something you've made uh on twitter or something and the comment that i had uh and this came at the beginning of the pandemic so it really, it really moved me. It came at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all unsure about our jobs. They rebroadcast the show that I worked on. And someone, I plugged it on Twitter and someone wrote back to me. I didn't know them and they just went, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. It opened up a whole new world for me. And I went, oh my gosh, that is exactly what I did for. Um, so it's that kind of thing. I think it's the, it's the, it's people's delight in learning new stuff and, you know, and being able to help them with that. Mm-hmm. Give me two of your favorite either TV series, documentaries, or movies. Current day, Nicholas. Oh, <laughs> current day, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Today, me me now as a grown-up. Oh, I don't know. I mean, look, what I've been watching recently, which I really, really enjoyed, um, uh, and I we just finished it today, is this series called Pen15. It's out on Hulu. It's a comedy where... Um, Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle are two, they're two women who are about my age, they're in their early 30s, and they play 13-year-old kids, they play 13-year-old versions of themselves, basically, with real 13-year-olds, like, and they, are, it's a comedy, it's basically about the trials and tribulations of going through middle school, and I love it, it's done so well, the acting in it is so good, um, and the best bit about it is, it's all about being a, a, a young teenager in the early 2000s, so it's exactly me, I remember that, I remember logging on to, <laughs> to, to uh, AIM or Instant Messenger and like, you know, hitting those keyboards with the kids, I remember middle school dances to, you know, going to, I literally, there's a scene where one of the kids goes to a middle school dance with a Limp Biscuit t-shirt, I did that. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's really, uh, that's been a nice bit of like you know Fred Durst <laughs> oh my god do you know I can still do like all the lyrics of those songs um, that's before I go into like good rock music I will hasten to add uh, but um... <laughs> well, well, what was the name of the they had an album that was a peculiar name it was like hot dog water and something chocolate starfish and hot dog flavored water hot yes, dog yes, chocolate starfish and hot dog flavored water we won't get into the meaning of it I mean, you really, you know, just, you know, I remember they did some, like, show, maybe it was the second Woodstock, you know, the disastrous Woodstock. Yeah, 99, 99. Yeah, I think they did that one, and they, like, came on stage out of a giant toilet. I mean, that band did not do subtlety, did they? (laughs) (laughs) And then he ended up being a music exec, imagine. Yeah, I know. 
Oh, no. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Okay, so there you go. I've, I've now confessed two things. Uh, Pen15, very good. I really like that. Nimbiscuit, not very good, but I did also really like that. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's next for Nicholas de, uh, de Taranto? What is next for me? Well, to currently stands, I'm going to be working on my current project until summer um, this year. And then it also, I mean... It does really depend on like, where we are in this world in these uncertain times. But the next real goal for me is, you know, you're asking me to give advice to other people who want to get into filmmaking. I feel like I'm kind of this close to now being able to do one of my own ideas. That's my sort of next real step um, that I've been lining up because I've been working on other people's projects long enough and now I'd love to kind of get one of my own ideas commissioned. So that's the sort of, that's the kind of big next step for me. Um, but uh, yeah I'm also going to try and take some time out <laughs> um, um, and relax a bit later this year so, next so Nicholas when you are 105 years old and you're on your rocking chair uh, either in Anguilla or the English countryside or the German countryside what is that thing that you'd like to say I wanted to do and I did so what is Nicholas de Taranto's ultimate dream <sighs> I mean, there's always a, there's always a few, aren't there? There's like the one film that you always want to make, or the fact that I've got a really dear friend, and we're hoping to one day start our own production company, um, and that would be lovely. I'd love to be able to have really built something that you bring other people in. That because one of the things I have now is I work with some people. And I'm like, you're so good, we should work together again. And I just think it would be so much easier if you just have a company where you can basically invite all your friends to work with you. <laughs> so that would be one thing I'd love to build. Um, that would be one thing I'd love to build. Mm -hmm. uh, so Nicholas, this is a segment where I strap on my spacesuit, I go out into the atmosphere, and I leave you on the planet all alone to say to the fans, the friends, and the followers, whatever it is you'd like to say to them, what say you? The planet is yours. Oh my gosh, this is, uh, I, I, I've forgotten about this part of the show. <laughs> um, what would I say to the planet? I would, I would, um, I mean, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully not something too, like, uh, too, too draconian or, or scary. I don't know. I mean, I would try to make it, look around at our current um, planet, the, the one that's not, sadly, planet 30. Um <laughs> And you've got a place where people are, you know, there is so much promise amidst all this, the stuff where there is so much that seems to be going wrong, if that makes sense. And I just want our planet to have the stuff where it's the promise. I love that, uh, you know, kids pull down a statue of a slaver mm. <laughs> in Bristol this summer and then signed a petition to learn more about colonialism at school. I want more of that on my planet. Here, 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 here. Most important question of uh, the interview, how do we get in contact with you? How do we see your productions? So, one of the best ways is probably to find me on Twitter, because that's where I regularly plug what's going on, and I can, you know, um, be contacted through that, if you're interested. Um, so, my Twitter handle is just ndtaranto. Um, yeah, uh, I'm always on that. I'm always um, sort of informing uh, like my kind of followers and other people, what what the next project is. Um, so do feel free to reach out on me there. All right, all right, all right. Nicholas de Toronto, world traveler, expert documentary producer, uh, future BAFTA award winner. 
feature Oscar winner, we would like to thank you for joining us here on Planet 30. Thank you so much, Crispin. Um, it's been a real pleasure and uh, happy birthday again. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, Planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.